This is not a victimless development in our culture. Um, this is not progression. Uh, this is not uh, equality, uh, inclusivity, uh, diversity, whatever these buzzwords might be. We'll know that the fundamental reality is this, that the, the sexual revolution, so-called, has generated a genocide. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of About Abortion. I'm joined once again by Tim Lewis. Thank you Tim for coming on and today we are looking at love, lust and a license to kill and really we want to examine uh, I suppose this claim that we so often hear in culture. Um, look it's my body, um, who cares what I do in the bedroom, that's between me and anyone else I choose to include uh, how I express myself is none of your business. And perhaps the the classic um, mantra, love is love. Um, so we really want to uh, scrutinize this a little bit um, in the light of God's word. And so we're going to just do a little Bible study, I suppose, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. At least we're going to use that as our springboard. Might not spend all our time there. And uh, consider actually what what's the truth? What's the truth about the decisions we make? In the bedroom and in particular how does that relate to violence and killing and uh, the results may shock you let's go straight into um 2 samuel chapter 11 tim i don't know if you've got um a bible there um i i'm happy to read unless you want to to jump in but i thought we could just read the whole of chapter 11 and um but also think about the wider uh, context of david's david's reign and what happens next um shall i read yeah, please do that. All right. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, Joab, uh, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, uh, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, uh, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. 
Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman, woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Um, Tim, can you tell us just a little bit about uh, the sort of context here? Um, I remember you referring to this as a, a, a sort of a pivotal moment in David's life and reign and indeed the, the sort of the, the the kingdom, the nation. Um, yeah, can you just tell us a bit about sort of in particular what happens next and how the trajectory changes here? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think I think this is a really ugly story uh, in, in what is, to be honest, to, to Samuel is quite an ugly book and it gets uglier and uglier as the story goes on and the body count gets kind of ever higher. Mm-hmm. I mean, I... People have had different views on this. I, I would say David here is presented as as, as, as coming very close to, to, to raping uh, Bathsheba. I certainly don't think this is a consensual act. Um, uh, the thing that David did displeased the Lord. There's no mention of Bathsheba's guilt. She's presented very favorably throughout 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. You know, could she really have refused the king at this point? Um, David, on the other hand, from the beginning, really, his idleness, you know, he should have been fighting Israel's battles. He's lazing around the palace. The narrator places the blame squarely, squarely with David, really. His mm. rooftop kind of voyeurism at an hour when people would have typically taken their, their baths. And, and obviously this is actually Bathsheba's purifying after her menstrual period. So again, there's no there's no doubt about whose child this could be. Um, hmm. Nothing stops David. He's overcome with lust. He's the one who initiates. He's the one who controls the action. The narrative is kind of very terse, very functional. He fetches Bathsheba. He does with her as, as he pleases, just as a later send Uriah, her husband, off to die. Bathsheba, on the other hand, returns to her family home. 
having been kind of discarded by David. And she, of course, deeply mourns for her husband Uriah when he's killed. Now, David might not have given the thing a second thought, it's kind of one night stand or whatever it is for him. Yet there are consequences to yeah. his actions. You know, the, the sexual act is, 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 is something with consequences. It's a weighty thing. And in this case, a child has been conceived. And it's at that point that it's like a, a hinge for the narrative, really. A uh, little, um, rather, Bathsheba's kind of little statement to David. She sends her own message at that point. Her sort of agency begins to develop from this point onwards. I'm pregnant, it's just two words in Hebrew. And from that point in the narrative, everything changes. And, and David's grip on power, David's grip, in fact, on his own family, really unravels uh, with, with, with terrible results. Um, yeah, and, and that includes kind of sexual, further sexual sin. So, so later on, we'll see um, the kind of violation of, of David's harem by, by his son. We'll see in chapter 13 that, that even, perhaps even more horrible, if that's possible, rape of Tamar, David's own daughter, by uh, her half-brother Amnon. And then that will lead to a further murder when Absalom, um, Tamar's brother, will kill um, uh, Amnon in revenge. And, and one gets the very strong sense from the, from the narrative that really Absalom is acting as he does because David is really a little bit ineffective here. He's not really punished or disciplined um, Amnon effectively. And perhaps that's because he realizes, well, I haven't got a moral leg to stand on, you know. Yeah. I've committed this horrible crime with, with Bashi, but how can I then take the moral high ground with my with my wayward son. So 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 things, you know, continue to unravel, and of course, primarily with, with Uriah's own death. But there's a whole series of, of murders and, and 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 sort of battles that are fought as a direct consequence of this action, rebellion and stuff in the kingdom. You know, D David from this point is never really in control of his kingdom again, I would I would argue. And it all begins with this act of, you know, acts of lust, acts of adultery. Mm. Um, all happens very quickly. And, you know, a lot of people look at it and say, well, you know, okay, he's the king, he's the strong man. It's, you know, again, it's, 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 you know, we're making a big deal about this, guys. But, but everything, the, the narrator is very clear that from that point, that's when everything falls apart for David. Absolutely. I, I was, I was really struck as you were reading, as I, as I was reading the passage and something I hadn't really sort of noticed before is just how, well, we, the consequences of um i often think of this passage i think about the consequences of david's sin uh and how one sin leads to another sin doesn't it well at least a temptation to another sin and as it's been said the breaking of the seventh commandment um sort of results in a temptation to break the sixth commandment having committed adultery he's now committing murder essentially to try and cover his tracks and kind of manage the situation um and that is a cause and effect that's very important. But prior to that, of course, there is the the simple, um, as it were, biological cause and effect of life. Life has been created, and it it it's it should be too simplistic to point out um, that this is where babies come from. This is how babies come into being. Sex often leads to uh, new life. Um, but that that simple scientific um, fact. Is, is effectively undermined and almost totally denied in popular culture today. I remember speaking with, a, a, I think it was a student about all this stuff. 
And they were saying, we were talking about the fact that, well, you know, um, if you have sex, you might become a parent. You know, are you ready for that? And it was almost ridiculous that we would suggest that any any of these students, I'm talking about university students, any of these students should be ready for parenting. Of course, we're not ready for that. And yet it was equally um, obvious and unquestionable that they were all engaged in, in sexual lifestyles. So it's this idea that you can access sex, but without even the possibility uh, of, of a life resulting. Um, and that is, I think, one of the great deceits of the sexual revolution, that you can effectively separate those two things and, and so safely compartmentalize. And this idea that sex can be reduced just to recreational. Um, and, and, and hence, you know, who cares what, who cares who I love? You know, what I do in the bedroom is, is up to me. And yet the reality is it's almost entirely the opposite of what's true. There is probably no act more significant for the lives of others than actually what you do in the bedroom. What other act can create a life, a whole life? What other act can bring down an entire nation effectively is what happens here, um, or or make or break families? Um, you could argue this is the very most significant act uh, in terms of wider society and other people, uh, possibly that you will ever do and so that the deceit of the sexual revolution in in recent generations is is so much of it is, is i think based on this idea that well we we now have the the technology the wherewithal to have sex and babies in totally separate compartments and yet the reality is it just doesn't work like that um so so that was the the the, the first thing that kind of I thought we need to notice the cause and effect at a biological level. But then, of course, there is this wider connection between sexual sin and violence. And you mentioned there a string of, um, you know, as the narrative unfolds, there's more sexual sin, there's more violence. And it does seem there's almost a an inevitable link between these two things. And I don't know whether um, you would agree with this, Tim, but as I think about different cultures, uh, for example, uh, Roman, you know, ancient Rome, um, our culture increasingly, we do see these things kind of going hand in hand, don't we? I mean, the, the, the 1960s, the passing of, um, well, of course, you've got the sexual revolution, particularly focused in the 60s. Um, you've got the pill, uh, which you know promises um, freedom and so on at that level. Um, and, 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 and of course, it's during the 60s we get the Abortion Act passed and the baby genocide begins and we just see that tread i mean do you think it's fair to say is there a sort of chicken and egg thing here or do you think it is a sort of as simple as yeah actually the the, the more sexual sin increases the more we're going to see violence increases what do you think about the connection there is there an, an inevitability about that yeah i mean i mean 100 I, I mean i think it's you know we you have to realize as well that that i think certainly in in the pagan world in the greco-roman world you know ab abortion was a thing Pe people people knew how you yeah. know sex worked how children were made and you know people would try various rudimentary contraceptives often they were ineffective and and you know abortion would be practiced i i don't think anything like on the scale we have today um and but i would also say that primarily when abortion was happening in those in those cultures i think it was very often as the result of uh 
probably not even promiscuity, probably adultery, you know, so so an extramarital affair, yep. liaison or whatever, where the, you know, where, where the child, a child was conceived, where that wasn't really the intention. And that then became a, a, a difficulty or potential embarrassment, a cause of shame, stigma, whatever, a scandal. And so how, how do you, how does one avoid a, a scandal? Well, one tries to get rid of the child and, and sort of disguise the, the pregnancy. Um, so, so in other words, you compound in Christian language, you compound the sin of adultery with the sin of murder. Mm. And certainly if you look at the early church, the, the writings of the, um, you know, apostolic fathers, the writings of the sort of late generation and things like the Didache, um, that's very much how abortion is seen. It, it's seen as, you know, adultery was bad enough, but what you do if you find yourself pregnant um, or if you're, you know, you fathered this child, and and then the pressure's on you as well. You don't then pressure your, you know, your partner to have an abortion. You don't then compound that sin of adultery by murder. You somehow recognise that this is uh, a life, and or rather, you recognise that this is the result of your irresponsibility and the result of sin. But you have a responsibility then to that, uh, to that life. And you trust somehow that God is going to redeem that situation, as as we often see God does with, with various problematic pregnancies we've talked about in the past in Scripture. Mm. So, but what, yeah, as I say, what the early Christian tradition does very much is it is it pairs those two things that, as you say, the the violation of the the sixth and the seventh commandments: so thou shalt not murder, and thou shalt not commit adultery. And it's very often that the one leads to the other. So, yeah. you commit adultery, and that then leads to, I think, almost without hesitation what the church would say is the graver sin of of murder in this case mm. yeah it's yeah. interesting that connection was obvious for the early church i think it was also more obvious for the church in the 60s and 70s than perhaps it is today although that the evangelical church uh, in the 60s and 70s was extremely tepid in opposing abortion uh, they just didn't do it um, when they did begin to pay attention interestingly for many, they remained a bit hazy about the sanctity of life in the womb and when life begins and so on. But what they did, um, what they were exercised by, uh, to some extent, was that connection, was that this was actually encouraging the sexual revolution, that abortion was part of that sort of sexual revolution birth control package. And that they actually saw the, the, the wider, the sort of per periphery of that issue in a way that perhaps we don't. And perhaps we've become so desensitized to the sexual revolution we're so used to it we're so we we are being sort of conditioned by its messaging all day long um we, we've probably uh, adopted this idea that yeah it is a private decision it is just about you and what how you express yourself and okay as a christian i might not do x or i might not do y because that's not my religion but maybe we have quite a pietistic approach to it and we sort of think of it in terms of individualistic um, holiness and okay well we'll be orthodox in our beliefs but we are um, naive as to the wider ramifications of these things I mean interesting case in point we, we um, can't get into details here I don't know the details well enough but with uh, the issue of, of Uganda recently passing laws on homosexuality um, I saw a very well-known um, evangelical leader here in the UK say well you know homosexuality it, that's not uh, deleterious it's not detrimental to society in any way so so what business is it of of legislators and of course what's underneath a statement like that is 
not understanding that what we do in the bedroom does affect society. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of About Abortion. I hope you're appreciating these podcasts. And if you are, can I ask for your help in getting these vital messages to more people? We're delighted that we can get these to people free of charge. Uh, That's not free for us to produce. It costs something like three to four hundred pounds a month to get these podcasts produced. And I wonder if you could help us, partner with us financially. Uh, Many of us will have uh, an Amazon Prime subscription or some kind of streaming platform to the tune of six, seven, eight pounds a month. I wonder if you consider, as it were, taking out a subscription uh, with us. If you could donate, say, eight pounds a month, if we had about 40 people donating around eight pounds a month, just eight pounds a month, uh, that would help us to continue to do these podcasts uh, free of charge for anyone who uh, wants to listen in. And this is the only podcast uh, specifically about abortion in the UK. It's the greatest injustice, not only of our time, but in all history. Would you help us uh, to bring these life-saving messages to more people? And don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe. Do send this in particular to your church leaders and uh, and anyone else you think might be interested. Thank you so much for your support and uh, I'll let you get back to the episode now. Uh, maybe not always directly, not immediately, but in the long run, far more than, uh, you know, there, there are all sorts of um, things that are illegal just for your own personal health and safety, like wearing a seatbelt or whatever. But but compared to, you know, what, what, what I do in the bedroom, what that's going to do to the next generation, it's far more significant than whether or not I you know, wear a seatbelt or something. But, but we, we, we've been really quite brainwashed into that idea of, well, no, it, it's, there, there is... It just stops there. What I do in the bedroom stops there. It doesn't have that wider uh, context. And I think that's what the early church got. And actually even the, the, the church in the 16th, 70s who were hazy about sanctity of life, but still saw that actually the sexual revolution really was a big deal. But I think, uh, maybe this is just me. I don't know what you think, Tim, but I, I think that the church today in the UK is somewhat sleepwalking, not just through the, the, the baby genocide, but also the sexual revolution. It doesn't seem to bother us we don't seem to clock what it's doing to society to children to marriages and so on and to the whole of society i don't know maybe that's just me i think that's exactly right what what i would also add to that our view of uh, men and women and the distinctives between men and women i think that's all bundled up in this as well um and, and the sort of yeah some of the bitter fruits of feminism which we which we're seeing today uh yeah no so absolutely agree with that and i, and I think it's i mean it's it's interesting because actually uh the Greco-Roman world, obviously, um, exposure of unborn or sorry of unwanted um, babies, so kind of putting them out, or either killing them directly or putting them out somewhere and hoping that someone might might take in the child and, and adopt it, was far more common than abortion, and that's simply because abortion was very hard to do. It's very mm. hard to do safely. Of course, no abortion is safe for the child, but. Certainly in the ancient world, abortion would very often harm the mother in significant ways. So abortion was nothing like as, as, as common as infanticide, so once the baby's been killed. And and really there's no, you know, in, in the Greco-Roman world, there's no real taboo against exposure, against infanticide. And it was done for various reasons to control uh, or to limit family size, rather. It was done, as I say, when there was when the paternity of the child was, was in question. It was done if the child wasn't deemed perfect in some way. Perhaps they were disabled or... Enough. We know that very uh, a, lot, a lot more girls were exposed than boys, but I think what happens even in this pagan culture, certainly in the latter part of the of the Roman Roman Empire, 
the, the people in charge realize that goodness me the population is declining and actually it's not growing at the rate that that, that, it, that it should and that we need to replace the society and especially kind of replace the upper echelons of society and because of course if you have small family sizes and you have the rate of uh, infant mortality that you had in the ancient world in the greco-roman world then of course the population is naturally going to decline so even in that pagan culture, they begin to try and put in legislation, checks and balances to really encourage people to have larger families and, and to not uh, do these things. And certainly later Roman thinkers would become much more um, much more stern on issues like infanticide and abortion. People like Seneca, uh, Ovid, um, yeah, Musonius Rufus. So it's interesting that even in that pagan culture, they see the link and they realise Oh, oh gosh, these things are not sort of um, unconnected. You know, the way we regard marriage, the way we regard family life, the the, the purpose of, of sexual um, relationships, which of course are not only about procreation, but within the Judeo-Christian um, worldview, there are there are key parts of sexual relationships. Um, you know, so, so even that pagan culture clocked it. But it's like, as you say, Dave, it's like we have so divorced. Um, sexual intimacy the sex from procreation that it ha we, we, we have kind of recreation recreationalized sex i don't even know if that's a word but that's what we've done mm. so so yeah we almost need to be re-educated on yeah god's god's model god's blueprint which begins way back in genesis one where men and women are made men and women in large part so they can procreate continue the stewardship of god's earth yeah, there was a, a an article by Louise Perry, I think it was, uh, just recently in First Things, um, which uh, I'll put the link to um, underneath this video. But uh, the title is um, "We Are Repaganizing," and it's it's making the point that uh, the UK is sort of reverting to a sort of Greco-Roman culture, and what she's focusing on particularly. And she sees the connection very clearly between sexual license, whatever you want to call it, and um, and abortion and infanticide. And she quite daringly puts those two together and she knows that's controversial. She herself, she's not a Christian, she's not pro-life, she's uh, not enthusiastic about abortion, but she makes it very clear in that piece that she's not pro-life, but she's happy to admit that there is this connection and she's uncomfortable with the prevalence of abortion and so on. Uh, I think she sees that the, the distinction between late-term abortion and infanticide is is immaterial. Um, but she sees that connection, uh, and and she opens her her piece with um, some some lines from a poem. If I'll just read this now. Um, there's a this is how she opens. It's a very short and brutal poem by the Scottish poet Holly McNeish, written in 2019 and titled "Conversation with an Archaeologist." He said they'd found a brothel on the dig he did last night. I asked him how they know. He sighed. A pit of baby's bones. A pit of newborn baby's bones was how to spot a brothel. And this is apparently the case that uh, when you find a sort of mass grave of baby's bones uh, in the ancient world, you know you found a brothel. Now, of course, our methods these days are different. As you say, in those days, exposure or whatever was by far easier um, nowadays, uh, it's considered that the so-called early abortion is easier, and so we don't have a pit of bones. But the principle is very much the same. Sexual license leads to violence against children. It, it's, that seems pr 
pretty consistent. We've we've talked from you know 1,000 years BC right through Greco-Roman culture to present day. It seems a pretty inviolable principle that where there is sexual license, children get killed, and that is a, a grave uh, reality that uh, we need to wake up to, and we need to help our culture to wake up to. This is not a victimless development in our culture. Um, this is not progression. Uh, this is not uh, equality, uh, inclusivity, uh, diversity, whatever these buzzwords might be. We'll know that the fundamental reality is this, that the the sexual revolution, so-called, has generated a genocide. And sex is generative, whether whether for good or for ill. So the, in God's design, sex is is obviously it's more than that, but it is the means of procreation. It is generative of life. Um, it has an impact on future. It creates future generations, and yet it's also generative when misused. It is generative for ill, uh, even for death. It doesn't necessarily, but it often goes on to cause violence and killing. And so it is, in a sense, the most uh, dangerous uh, thing that we have at our disposal, the way uh, Christian Hacking often describes it. He says it's like nuclear power. You know, when controlled and in the right environment, it's it's incredibly useful. Um, but if it's mismanaged, the, the the consequences are catastrophic. And 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 as we've said time and again, and it bears repeating, the sexual revolution has sought to uh, deny that fundamental reality. Look, it's just having fun. It's just about you expressing yourself. It's just about what you want to do with other people. And as long as there's consent, um, there are no complaints. Um, but just in case people are thinking that we're over-egging this, I just want to point out two um, observations uh, that have come to light, one of them very recently. Uh, a paper which, again, we'll link underneath the video um, by Kevin Duffy. He's a public health consultant. Half of all Generation Z pregnancies now end in abortion. That is a shocking statistic. So Generation Z, apparently uh, people born from uh, in 1997 and later. Um, half of all pregnancies ending in abortion. So what we're seeing here, and I don't know if we've got stats, I don't know if they exist, I don't know if it's possible to find out, but whether Generation Z could be described as the, the most... Um, promiscuous or sexually liberated so-called generation. I don't know compared to previous generations, but certainly what we can see as a general trend since the 60s is the more the sexual license, the greater the baby genocide. It's almost a necessity. There is no way that, uh, you know, that sexual license isn't followed by the killing of babies um, because there's there's just the space has not been made for those babies um, in that in that kind of activity. Also probably interesting to know whether that sort of coincides with the, the greater and greater mainstreaming of, of porn in society. Mm. And, you know, this is a generation that are raised with, you know, in easy access of pornography and almost come to, you know, whatever the school's ideas of sexual education, they almost come to learn about sex through pornography. Um, one's one's image of, of healthy sexual relationships and how one regards of a opposite sex kind of completely distorted through mm. through this mainstreaming of you know pornography so so i think yeah it again it's all connected I, just very briefly on what we said about the greco-roman world i think there's strong evidence as well dave that you know going back to the old testament times so even earlier you know the Molech cult and and mm. 
the pagan cultures around Israel, the Canaanite cultures who sacrificed their children, I think that they would, there's a very strong likelihood that many of the children who were sacrificed would have been, yes, the, 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 the children conceived in sort of um, fertility rituals in the kind of pagan religion, uh, cult prostitution, we won't say, that was going on in Canaan at the time and, and which God's people are constantly kind of being tempted into. So these things absolutely uh, go together. And, and we just see that in, the, as you say, the re-paganization of society, I think. Absolutely. And, and when, when you see um, in Leviticus, for example, um, the, uh, the prohibition of child sacrifice uh, in at least one of those places, if not in, in, in most places where it's mentioned, it, it is in the context of sexual sin, isn't it? It's a, a list of, of uh, prohibited sexual behaviors. And then right in the middle of all of that, which could seem kind of random, is yeah, it's forbidden to sacrifice your, your children. Uh, and of course, but it's not random. It's because so often these cults, again, combined uh, sexual license, um, all sorts of perverted behaviors uh, with child sacrifice. And again, that connection is uh, so strong. Um, and it's one of the reasons we must oppose false teachers. We were just talking about this before the call, but there are false teachers in the church who have joined this, you know, LGBT plus whatever movement and, and suggest that, yeah, whatever you want to do, that's who you are. God celebrates you. One of the things they're doing, wittingly or unwittingly, is aggravating the child genocide because you cannot promote that culture without also demanding the blood of innocent children, just as you can't tolerate or promote Moloch worship uh, without uh, promoting the, the, the practice of child sacrifice. And so it's just, it's, it's so important we see this and we wake up to the, the bloodthirstiness of the sexual revolution, if I can put it that way. It is a bloodthirsty and violent movement, uh, though it would like to portray itself as the exact opposite. Um, the other observation I, I mentioned uh, that I wanted to mention was was just um, more anecdotal, really, from a, a pregnancy center that we're aware of and friendly with. Um, they showed me some of their statistics, and they, and what, in fact, what they shared also, it is it is in line with the national statistics, so it's no surprise. But of those seeking an abortion or considering abortion, about eighty percent identify as single. That's their that's what they say they are. So, so the 80% of, of women uh, considering or, or indeed getting an abortion uh, describe themselves as single. So again, the connection is easy to see when sex is taken outside of that context that God has prescribed for it. Um, so often it leads I, and that, that, to Sorry, Dave, stupid, mm. but that issue of the missing father would be a continuous thread throughout history going yeah. back into the Greco-Roman period. And, and I guess even beyond that, where the father is absent, yeah. either so this child's conceiving prostitution, or the father's absent because it's an adulterous affair or whatever, mm. then yeah, the 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 the, 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 the sort of possibility uh, or the likelihood rather of abortion becomes that much greater yeah. when the father's out. So so we we again we we can frame this as a woman's issue. Yeah. Well, it, it's a kind of absent father issue as much right. as anything. I think it's a, it's a male irresponsibility issue as much as yeah. anything. Um, Absolutely. No, that's really helpful. And, and, and very much what we saw in the passage with David and Bathsheba, for example, is actually it, David is held responsible there. And I, I do believe that across the board, on average, as it were, men will be held far more accountable for abortions than women. Um, 
I th- there are multiple layers of responsibility and so on. But in almost all cases, um, a child is, abor- is aborted because the father has abandoned that child to abortion and they will be held uh, responsible. Um, but on that note, I want to finish really with um, a different note, um, Psalm 51, because we're, we're talking here about sexual sin. And of course, the reality is, you know, who among us, whether speaking here on the podcast or listening, who who among us has clean hands? None of us. We have all sinned in this area and in other areas. Um, for some of us, it, it, it's an acute ongoing struggle for many of us, perhaps. And I think it's important for us that as much as we need to uphold the law of God and point out um, the way God has ordained things, created things, the context that he's created lovingly for our good and the, and the awful consequences when we disregard his pattern. And we need to uphold that. And we need to do the, more of that as the church. I think we're, we have a problem in the church of antinomianism. We don't, we don't uh, show enough regard for the law of God. And yet at the same time, of course, we don't want to um, be uh, mere moralists uh, and, and have nothing more than the law of God to share. Of course, we have his grace and mercy to celebrate and to hold out as well. So I just wanted to finish. I don't know, Tim, if you'd be happy just to read for us Psalm 51, but I thought it'd be good just to finish on this note. It's a wonderful story for those who aren't aware of the story. It then goes on. Nathan the prophet comes to David uh, and tells this parable, which um, is used to bring David to his senses, and he is uh, convicted of sin, and he's truly sorry. And uh, as we know from the the, the sort of preface, uh, Psalm 51 was written uh, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So let's let's finish on a note of of grace and mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. If you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tim. And I do hope for those listening in, if you um, if you are disturbed at a personal level 
Uh, I pray that for the disturbed, this will be uh, a word of comfort. Um, but for those who are comfortable and in need of some disturbing, I hope this has also been uh, something that's provoked you um, in a helpful way. And for those that we can pass these messages on, again, may it be um, comforting to the disturbed and disturbing to the comfortable uh, as is needed. Thank you so much for listening in this week and uh, we look forward to having you join us again. Please do remember to um, share this and like it and comment and so on and particularly do share it with um, those in your church who, who mainly haven't thought these issues through and particular your church leadership. Thank you so much and we'll see you again.